This is Jessica Martinez, and you're listening to The Pumping Podcast. Hey there, mamas. So today I'm chatting with Samantha Day. We both met on Instagram, and we've actually never met in person, but we ended up chatting so much that it feels as though we do know each other. (laughs) So someday, hopefully, we'll actually be able to meet in person. Samantha Day is a mama who has found a passion in sleep. She has become a sleep consultant. And now I know some of you might be starting to roll your eyes because the conversation over sleep can be quite controversial, but hear us out. After going back to school and learning the science behind sleep, combined with the daily practicality of being a mom, Samantha has come up with three very easy steps that everybody can start to implement right away when it comes to sleep. Because let's be honest, everyone needs sleep, moms, dads, and babies. We all need sleep. So enjoy the episode and here's to happy days and rested nights. Well, I'm just, I'm so excited that we get to chat and it's so funny because we met on Instagram and now I feel like we talk all the time and I I don't even, (laughs) I've never even officially met you, but someday we're going to have to grab coffee and it'll feel like old friends. (laughs) So before we go ahead and dive in, I want to just let everyone know that well, you just recently started your own podcast called I Happy did. Days, Rested Nights, right? I did, yes. So any new mama, especially out there, but any mama really should go ahead and check out her new podcast, Happy Days, Rested Nights. And I have definitely been listening and it's just, um, you just have such a good voice too. So it's really nice and comforting, but there's tons of information there. Well, thank you. That's a huge compliment. I appreciate it. Yeah, I, I want it to fit a lot of different stages of parenting. So the goal is for it to be from pregnant moms all the way up to probably moms with like eight to 10 year olds and anywhere in between. Awesome. So for those who don't know, I'm speaking today with Samantha Day. She is the founder of Samantha Day Sleep Consulting. And um, you can find her on Instagram at Samantha Day Sleep Consulting or also her website is samanthadayconsulting.com. But before we dive into really what you do and all of the sleep stuff, I just want to go back to you as a mom. So first of all, where are you joining us from today? I wish we were sitting in the same room, but not yet. Someday. (laughs) Someday. Someday we're going to have coffee and enjoy a nice, friendly conversation in person. But I am originally from the Chicagoland area, but my husband and I and our family relocated to Knoxville, Tennessee about a year and a half ago. So that's where I am right now. Awesome. And so going back into the past, what was life like for you before you became a mom? So I put myself through school and I got a degree um, from Northern Illinois University as a behavior specialist. And I really, with that path, decided that I wanted to work with children with special needs, but especially children on the autism spectrum. I've always had a very big part of my heart that just was a calling for that. So that was my life. I love to dance. Those are my hobbies as I did some, um, some country oh. and ballroom dancing for a while. So that was, that was when I wasn't working. And then when I was working, I was working with children with autism, which was always amazing and very challenging at the same time, but always very rewarding. 
And then my husband and I met and we were together for quite a while. He is um, a little bit older than I am and has two kids. So or had two kids prior to us being together. So when I met him, I really got to see him as a dad before, you know, what he was like as a dad before he was even a father to our children, which was pretty a, a cool perspective. And then kind of yeah. jumped into that stepmom role pretty quickly as well. So um, we've been together for almost 13 years now, married for nine. And we just had a, a normal married life with, you know, kids occasionally when his kids would come and visit. And now did you have just curious about the autism spectrum and your passion for it? Did you have anyone in your family or close to you that dealt with autism or? No, I didn't. I moved out of my family's house when I was 18, out of my dad's house. And I moved in with um, actually a guy that I was dating his mother's house and lived there for a while. And I had to pay rent and it, I had to get a real job and I was putting myself through college. And, you know, you kind of just got to figure everything out. So wow. the no, the best job that I could find working with children, making the most amount of money was at a school that was a therapeutic day school. And I was a little bit like, okay, I don't know what I'm doing here. This is, you know, children with special needs. I don't know how to, can I handle this? You know, it's a lot of what ifs. And on, on the first day, it was the hardest and the best day probably of my life prior to having kids, because you just realize this is not going to be easy, but this is exactly where I need to be. So I don't know. It was just a connection on that day. No, it would, I went into it because it paid well at the time, you know, as an 18 yeah. year old that just had to pay rent. And then I realized real quickly, okay, this, I love this. And I was putting myself through college. So it took me eight years to get a four year degree. But in that time I worked full time at the school and got so much experience. So then when I graduated, it was a lot easier to get a job with that amount of experience. So it was a long path, but it was a helpful path and I wouldn't change it. Cool. And so you kind of jumped into the role of stepmama for a little while, but then who made you a mama? You individually, yeah. who made yeah. you a mama? So when, um, right after we were married, we moved to Texas. So we lived there for a little while. And while we were living there, we decided we wanted to start our family together. So we ended up um, having a baby boy first and his name is Caden. He's almost seven years old, which is crazy to me. It does the mamas that are sitting pumping right now listening to this podcast are thinking seven sounds forever away. It really is not. Just blink. It'll happen. <laughs> yeah. Um, it zooms by, I'm sure. It sure does. So he's almost seven. And then I have a daughter who is just turned five. And so what was, you don't have to go into all the detail or you can, it's up to you, but what was pregnancy like and your birthing experience like with both of them? Yeah. So with my son, I, I would say I was, I had very good pregnancies. So I am thankful for that. I enjoyed my pregnancies um, and I, they were pretty uneventful in general, but I would say with my son around the 32, 33 week mark, I knew something felt weird and I didn't know what it was because it was my first pregnancy, but I just knew that something wasn't quite right. Mm. Um, so I went in and I was like, okay, he feels weird. Everyone says that as you get further and further along in your pregnancy, you feel feel them get lower and lower. And I'm just feeling him get higher and higher, like into my rib cage. And they just kept saying, Oh no, it's just his feet. He's, in, you know, he's kicking into your ribs. And I'm like, no, no, something else is going on. So the doctor came and felt around and she was like, okay, we're going to do an ultrasound. So we did. And it turned out that he was, um, uh, not the correct, he was not head down. He was definitely head up uh. and he also was doing a toe touch. So, you know, babies come out and their <laughs> legs are in that like newborn, you know, position. Right. 
he was full out folded in half. And it was very, very strange because that's the way his muscles grew. I mean, he was healthy and there was no worry about that, but some people will go ahead and try to deliver normally if they're breech, you know, if they're not the correct position, but she told me, yep, not going to happen the way that he is in this toe touch position. He's not going to come out that way. So we, um, we knew we had to have a C-section, which was, you know, the stigma around that. And we're going to talk about stigma in a little bit with sleep, but the stigma around that is big. You know, there's so many people that have opinions about natural birth versus, you know, a medicated birth versus a C-section. And so in my head, you have your plan, you know what you want it to be like. And then all of a sudden I'm like, okay, well throw that out the window. We're about to have a C-section and there's not a choice. So my water broke at 38 weeks, um, because of the position he was in most likely. And we knew we had to get him out. So we went right in, they took him right out and he was healthy and wonderful. So it's just a little tiny, you know, adjustment in your thought process more than anything. He was healthy. I was thankful, but I'm like, but wait, I had a plan. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I feel like I hear that so, so often, but you just have to do what's best for you and for the baby. Yep, exactly. And my daughter, honestly, we we, uh, didn't exactly plan that one and that's okay. She she came along. She was wonderful. Um, I had a bad fall with her when I was pregnant. I was like 20 weeks old holding a different child and fell on some ice. So, you know, those little moments, they just are, they're so scary because your head immediately as a mother goes to the what ifs. And, you know, so of course we checked all that out and thankfully she was totally fine. And, um, you know, got to figure out if she was a boy or a girl on that visit. And so all was fine. We had great pregnancies and she came along and adjusted to life with two, but it was a, it was a good journey. And was she natural or was she a C-section as well? With that, um, they're only 21 months apart. So I was given the choice at first, if you, if I wanted to do one or the other, but turns out she was breech as well. So (laughs) she was, she was also a C-section. She wasn't the same, you know, toe touch position, but there was just another risk in there. So I decided, well, let's just go ahead and do this. And I'll tell yeah. you with that, that whole toe touch thing, he, like I said, he's seven. That boy is the most flexible child I have well, ever you know, seen. That's so funny. I was going to ask you that because I was thinking, okay, is he a gymnast? Is he flexible? Does mm-hmm. he, is he a dancer? Is he, you know? Right. Yeah. He's got some natural dance ability, but you know what he loves is ninja stuff. The whole ninja warrior fad that's going on right now. Well, that's ton of flexibility and you know, so how funny, oh my goodness. That's just so funny. I love that. Um, that sounds so great. So today we are going to dive into sleep. And for those listening, I know that this can be somewhat of a controversial topic, which we will We'll, we'll broach that subject. But one thing that you have said to me, Sam, is that, and I believe that everyone can agree with this, is just that sleep is necessary and is important for all of us, whether it's mom, dad, baby, sibling, everyone. And no matter how you get there, it's just important. So start off by just telling us, how did you get involved into this sleep journey that you're on? Yeah. So this was a journey I never thought I would go on. It was never, ever in my head until my son was born and he was about five months old and he was not a good sleeper. He was waking up six, seven, eight times a night. His naps were really horrible during the day. And he was so cranky because he wasn't getting the sleep that he needed. I, you don't want to know me if I don't get the sleep that I need. (laughs) So the whole family just, it was not going very well. And it was all because of sleep. And there came a day where I said, okay, something has to change, but you read all the books, all the articles, you see all the information and it all contradicts each other and becomes even more confusing. And it's often that contradiction 
contradiction comes from the difference in quote unquote opinion and how things should happen and how you should get to sleep, which obviously we'll talk about more. So I just decided, okay, this has to change and I have to figure out how to get him to a place where he's getting the sleep that his body needs. And then therefore I am as well, but how are we going to get there? So I started kind of doing a little bit of research, but also applying my behavioral background because Mm -hmm. sleep really is a learned behavior. A lot of people think that your child either comes out and you're blessed with a good sleeping baby or a not a good sleeping baby. And that's just not how it is. Some babies do come out with stronger abilities and they're on the clock that we want them to be on. You know, they don't have their days and nights reversed or things like that. But ultimately, it is a learned and guided thing to be able to reach that solid sleep that we're all wanting our children and for us to get. So I applied some of those behavioral background techniques and just kind of knowing how behavior works. And I started implementing them. And within a couple of nights, without a ton of tears, he was sleeping really, really well. And so my friends, a bunch of my friends that had babies at the time, and they said, well, what are you doing? Help me. And so I just decided to help them. And it worked. And their baby started sleeping better. And they told their friends and it just became kind of a snowball effect. Hmm. And it, after probably 50, 60 families of, you know, their babies sleeping really well, my husband, I think was the one that approached me and said, Hey, this is something you love to do. And I had planned on being a stay at home mom for five to six years or so till they were in kindergarten. I had stopped working and stopped teaching at the time. Um, and so I just, I was at home and I was enjoying it. And then I realized that passion I felt when I was able to help people again. And I think that's just my overall thing is like, I, I kind of have that need and my personality to help. And I was doing that when I worked with children with autism and I was doing that as a mom, but this passion kind of ignited that again. So I, again, planned on being at home like crazy, but then realized how much I loved this and did some research and figured out that this was a thing that people could go back to school and get certified as a sleep consultant. So I did, I went back to school. I got that additional certification, um, based on what the degree I already had. I just needed a little bit more. So got certified. And I really, again, wanted this to be helping one family here and one family there. And thankfully it has really, really grown. And I've worked with thousands of families now reaching, you know, happy day and arrested night, like the name of my podcast. And so when you go back to school for something and get certified as a consultant in sleep, since there are so many controversies over what approaches to take, my mind wonders, well, what the heck do you learn then? And how do you learn all the different ways and just how to approach them or What do they take you through? So in the actual course, the biggest thing you're learning is science. You're focusing on the facts. Why do our bodies sleep? How do we sleep? You know, circadian rhythms and sleep cycles and when our bodies need to sleep and how long we can be awake before, you know, we start to reach an overtired level. All of these things that really um, hold an important role. And I think that's why so many families I've worked with have had such great success is we're not going, okay, well, do you like cry it out or do you not? (laughs) You know, because so many people think that in order to reach sleep, you either have to let your child cry or you don't. And then they're going to be up forever. And that's, it's not black or white. What we do is we look at the foundation and we say, what is off? Why is your child waking up so many times throughout the night? And as an example, it could be, well, they're not napping at the proper time during the day. And that's raising their cortisol levels, which is a stress hormone. And that's connecting to their overnight waking. And that's just an example. But that's one thing where I could say, let's look at the foundation and what's truly going on, whether we're not even talking about tears yet or the approach yet, but the how and why and the foundation is the most important part. 
So that's kind of what you learn in the course or in the classes. And it's taught by doctors and nurses and people like that, that really know a lot about sleep, the course that I took. Interesting. And so what are some things that you found with your son? And then I'm sure that you applied them with your daughter that helped. Yeah. So number one, making sure that the timing of sleep is correct is one of the most powerful things that you can do. So if you've, if mamas that are listening right now are like, oh my gosh, I'm struggling with this too. Again, don't even think about the how yet, but think about when, when is your child sleeping based on their current age? And there really is kind of a roadmap of if your child is this old, this is about how long they can be awake before their body hits an overtired level. And if they're, you know, if we avoid that overtired tired level, it's going to be easier to fall asleep and easier to stay asleep. So the number one thing I always look at from the time my my children and any other child that I work with is born is how old are they and when is sleep taking place? Like how many naps, what time is bedtime, all of those types of things. So that's the first thing that we would look at. Um, And then, of course, you're going to look at your response to them, but that's when the behavioral aspect comes in. So no matter how you choose to respond to your little one, whether it's super gentle or kind of middle of the road or whether you are a cry it out um, parenting style, no matter how you respond, we need to do so consistently. It might take a little bit longer, one method versus another, but it's the inconsistent response behaviorally that causes so much confusion. So let's say we have a six month old is waking up three times overnight and we're trying to get them to go back to sleep. And one time we just say, okay, I'm going to leave them in there for a little while. And then I'm going to go check on them if it takes too long and they're still awake. And then the next time we say, oh my gosh, okay, I'm just going to go in and feed them. And then the next time we check in on them a couple times and that doesn't work. So we just bring them in the bed with us, right? This inconsistency right. in response as if, from usually about three months and up, they are so aware cognitively of kind of an if then factor, just understanding if this happens, then this happens and what our response to them is. So no matter what method you choose, if you have a goal of sleep, which we all should, um, and age appropriate sleep then we can figure out how you're going to respond and do so very, very consistently. And at first, they're not going to love your new response, no matter how gentle it is, because it's different. But if you can do so and continue implementing it very, very consistently and responding to them consistently, they're going to find comfort in knowing exactly how you're going to respond. So we want to look at the science to make sure they're not overtired. And then we want to choose a way of responding to them and be very, very consistent. So behaviorally, they understand what you're trying to do. And real quick, when I say behavior, I don't mean good behavior or bad behavior. I mean, behavior, human behavior. How are we responding? You know, what is our interaction like? Right, right. I just find all this stuff so fascinating. So when we were messaging back and forth for a little bit on Instagram and in talks of having you on the podcast, I brought up that I was, I was honest with you and I said, you know, I'm a little nervous about talking to you about sleep because so many moms that I hear about, it's just this big controversy and everyone, you know, I've even had moms that say, oh, I don't know if I would talk to a sleep consultant about this or that or whatever. You just kind of opened up and your passion about this just exploded and you said, you know, I'm sure you can just see that. I'm really, you know, passionate about this and I don't know why that there is this controversy, but I'm trying to solve it the best way as possible. Yep. So first of all, 
can you just speak to, because there might be people listening now that are like, okay, well, that seems great for you, but X, Y, Z, or but, you know, LMNOP. So why is this such a controversial topic? And what can we do to change that stigma around it? So my blood pressure starts to rise when I talk about this. So be bear with me. You will hear my passion for sure. But here, here is the thing. I would say the why is this such, such a controversial topic is two things. Number one, social media. So we, we kind of, well, there's so many different articles and blogs and stances out there, right? In politics, in religion, and anything. Everybody nowadays with social media wants to choose a platform, choose what they want to support, right? And it's almost always kind of an all or nothing type of thing. So parents, moms, you know, we we have our babies and then we feel like we have to choose. Am I, do I like cry it out or not? Am I going to be okay with sleep tra- training or not? Would I ever talk to a sleep consultant or not, right? And so that's kind of the biggest yeah. thing is social media puts a really bad rap on it um, for sure. Another thing though that social media does is it puts so much false information out there that scares us because we're moms and we love our babies and we don't ever want to make them feel neglected or, you know, X, Y, or Z, all the things that they tell you for people who are completely against teaching sleep, which by the way, I don't actually like to call it sleep training. I like to call it teaching sleep because we're not training a dog. We're teaching and guiding a skill that is necessary for all of us. Um, And then I would say the second reason why it's gotten that sleep consultants in general have gotten a bad rap is there are a lot of amazing consultants out there who have the education, who have worked with a bunch of families, who have seen results and have guided in a way that fits each individual family, okay? There are, though, some sleep consultants, and I've had many message me and say, oh my gosh, I love what you do. I want to do it too. How How do you do this? How do you start a business? And I'm like, well, what's your background? Do you have, do you know anything about sleep? Do you have any behavioral background? And some people are like, well, I'm a mom and I got my child to sleep. So I want to help a bunch of other people to do that. And to that, I say, awesome. If you have that passion, but go back to school and get that information and make sure you're certified and ready. So those are kind of two. Right. So you're basing it on those scientific facts. Exactly. And not just saying, well, this is what worked for my child, you know, and and so on. So there's even a couple out there that don't have children, which again, no judgment at all, but it is something that you kind of do want to figure out, you know, the differences between kids and know, you know, it kind of have been there and, and done it. Well, and I think the biggest thing too, is like, even when I wanted to start this podcast and I brought up just the idea of starting this podcast to some friends. And one thing that they mainly said is, you know, just remember that everyone's method of doing anything mom, dad, parenting related is so individual because every child is different. Every parent is different. Every situation is different. And so that's why I thought I have no background on being a mom. So I'm not going to speak to any of this. I just want to hear from all of you moms what your experience has been. And once again, this is that person's experience. Now with you, with your education, you've been able to come at it from a scientific point of view, which people could find helpful. But once again, what you recommend for some people may work or it may not. And if at that point, I would imagine that you would kind of go back to the drawing board then and say, okay, well now with your child in this situation, I would adjust it this way or that way. Is that correct? 
So what I typically, I always look at families individually for sure, because every single family is different and every single child is different. So yes, you have to look at it individually. Um, it's not black or white, but I, what I do is I like to start with my one-on-one clients at a, just a 15 minute call. And in that call, I ask them every single question that I could possibly ask them as far as the science of their, you know, what's going on, when are they getting sleep? What's the, what are the sleep hurdles that you're seeing right now? Behaviorally, what are you seeing? Um, what are they getting nutrition wise? When are they eating? We go over all of these things, but in that moment, I typically get a very good idea of the, that individual family's parenting style as well. So I find out about the child. I also find out about the parent, what they're comfortable with, what they're not comfortable with. Because if I guide them down a path that they're not comfortable with, it's not going to work. So that's not a plan. That's not a good plan for me or for them. Right. 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 So I need to find a method that's going to work for that child and going to be something that that family that the parents are going to be comfortable with so that they can implement whatever method it is consistently. And that's the biggest thing. Cause like I said, consistency is key, but I think the reason why I'll tell you that, and this is kind of vulnerable putting this out there, but I've worked with thousands of families, like I said, and I've only had three, um, who have reached out and said that did, that didn't work for our family. And in all three cases, they didn't follow the plan with consistency. Um, and the reason I say that and give those numbers out there is because it is, it is the facts, it is science. And when we look at it, number one, in a way that fits their family and number two, in a way that fits their kiddo. And then number three, that follows the science of how our bodies work. I I don't have a magical method. I have a guidance method that works because I'm addressing all three areas, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Yeah. The cry it out, the, the whole controversy around cry it out. What I like to do is say this, put aside, don't even let those three words come out of your mouth at first. Okay. But let's all try to find a common ground. We can all honestly say that our bodies were created to sleep, that sleep is needed, sleep is possible, sleep is important. We all need it. You need it. I need it. Babies need it. Everybody needs it. And of course, when babies are born, when newborns are born, segmented sleep is very normal for them to sleep smaller portions of time. But there's a lot of blogs and articles that'll tell you that a six-year-old should not be sleeping through the night, that it's not good for their health. I, I almost threw up when I heard that because it's not true at all. It was a false article with no science to back it at all. But if you have a family with a five-year-old who's still waking up in the middle of the night and they see an article like this, they might go, okay, they're still waking up. Maybe this is normal. So there's so much false information out there. So push away the cry it out, push away the false information and instead say, what is age appropriate for my child to be doing? And are they doing it right now? Are they getting the sleep that they need for their health, their development, their behavior, and all of those amazing things? Um, we are, when we're sleeping, our immune system strengthens, our muscles grow, um, our babies, actually their growth hormone is secreted during sleep. So we say how fast our babies grow. That's happening because of the amount of sleep that they're getting. And that's going to continue to happen at a more optimal level. I just had a family I worked with who's, they were having major issues with their two-year-old eating. He would not eat during the day. He was more of a grazer. Um, and he was even falling off the growth chart. And within, I think it was four or five days, he's now sleeping through the night and it's been two weeks and he's eating full meals and has gained two pounds in two weeks. How cool. So I know. So that's just an example of, I'm not talking about how we're getting there yet. I'm talking about the fact that every single person listening can say, yes, we need sleep as humans and it affects 
so many aspects of our life. We can actually, humans can go longer without food and water than we can without sleep. If you looked at like a, you know, we did not have food, we did not have water, you would fall asleep and wake up and still be hungry and still need water because your body needs sleep. What is, I mean, there's probably so many, but what is usually the number one concern you hear from parents regarding sleep? Well, I think that parents realize how quickly they feel exhausted and how quickly they feel like they can't function because they are so tired and they have had to be up so many times throughout the night. They're exhausted as parents. And, you know, I get up in the morning and I've got five cups of coffee in me and it's still not working. And what we quickly realize is, yes, you are definitely so tired and you need this sleep. But imagine what's happening in this little one, too, to not be getting that sleep that they need. And a lot of families know that when they call. They know their babies need sleep or their toddlers need sleep and they're ready to fix that. But I think so often it's the realization of how like you feel like a zombie to to make you go, oh my gosh, well, if I feel that way, they feel that way as well. Often just a, a desperation, you know, and realizing that, okay, I need help. And some families just aren't okay with reaching out for help, but it's okay to reach out for help. Just make sure you're reaching out to somebody who is knowledgeable and ready to find a way that fits your family. And at what point do you know what is not enough? Like, you know, when I think of moms, new moms, I think no sleep. Yeah. That's new mom. No, sleep. I know. it goes hand it's in hand. It's so sad though, because that's a misconception in the beginning. Yes. We're going to have segmented sleep as of about the four month mark. We can really start to say, this is how much sleep your child needs based on their individual age. So I have, for example, have a chart that says we're looking for 11 to 12 hours of sleep overnight. And that might involve a wake up still for a feed. Um, but we're still looking for a, a solid 11 to 12 hours. We're looking for three to four naps a day. We're looking for only being awake for about two to two and a half hours in between their sleep sessions. So from like wake up to nap and then between their naps and last nap to bedtime, that's pretty much the longest that about a four month old can be awake is about two to two and a half hours without their body starting to overproduce that stress hormone called cortisol that we talked about. Um, but fast forward, if we're talking about, let's say a two-year-old we're still looking for 11 to 12 hours of solid sleep overnight, hopefully without any wake-ups at two years old. But now we're looking for one nap a day um, of about, you know, an hour and a half to three hours or so, depending on the child. And we want about five to six hours of being awake before that nap takes place. So there really is a science. Uh, there are tons of research that's been done about what happens when they've been awake for too long or even for too little of, a, of an amount of time as well. So it really depends on their age. Because you can even see, you know, as most babies that I've babysat, you know, it's just involuntary. Their eyes just start to go, you know, they could be playing like crazy, but they just, you know, they start to get tired. Well, and that brings me to one point real quick too, is, um, you know, there's so many of those cute pictures that we've all seen of our kids that like fell asleep in the high chair while they were eating or like on the floor in their bouncer or whatever, you know, we've all seen those pictures and yes, they are funny and they're cute and they're a good memory. But if that's something that's happening all the time, then for sure we're saying they are in an overtired level. A well, a very well-rested child, um, shouldn't be falling asleep every time that they get into their high chair or anything like that. And then it's just kind of saying when we see those sleepy cues, you know, rubbing their eyes or falling asleep on the floor, obviously is a huge sleepy cue. 
then we're almost always already in an overtired level. So we can address that before we get to that point. Sometimes when we're laying our kid down at the proper time, we kind of want them to look wide awake and ready to go because, and they're not, their body's ready to fall asleep. But if we're already in this cranky, oh my gosh, they're so tired level, chances are that cortisol is already up a little bit. And when they do fall asleep, it's going to be harder to fall asleep and harder to stay asleep. And that's often when we get these long bouts of crying that nobody wants. Um, it's because they're already overtired. So if we find them at the right level of tired, that perfect window, it's so much easier to fall asleep without these long bits of, of crying that nobody wants. So now that brings me to a question because in talking about naps, so the ignorant person who doesn't have a child, I have been with people before who are very adamant that, okay, it's almost their nap time. We have to go back to this place, this location. They have to sleep, blah, blah, blah. And I've actually had conversations before where I've thought, well, if it's their nap time, can't they just sleep in the crib or, or sleep in a stroller or sleep in, you know, this other room and this and that. So would you say that it needs to also have that consistency of location or is it more so just the timing? So, you know, if you are out with your friends or if you are out at the park, is it okay that, oh, it's their time for nap. So we lay them down in the stroller and that's sufficient or do you have to make it back home? Super good question. I actually love this topic. So it depends on the age. Prior to about four months old, our babies are able to fall asleep and stay asleep and still reach a restorative level of sleep when it's stimulating around them. So when it's light and it's bright and there's people talking, most babies under four months do a better job of falling asleep and staying asleep in that type of environment. After the four-month mark, there are some kids who can still reach a restorative level of sleep if they are on the go or at the park or in a stroller, but the majority cannot. So if they do fall asleep on the go, that's okay, but I would say limit it to like one on-the-go nap a day if they're able to, and then have a goal of the other ones being in a consistent setting. So whether that's in the crib at daycare or in the crib at home or wherever it might be it's best to have it in a a less stimulating environment because they can reach a deeper, more restorative level of sleep that will help the next sleep session. And that one will help overnight and so on. So that's really important. But the other thing is over at about four months old is when our bodies start to produce melatonin and sunlight actually has the power to suppress our natural production of melatonin. So if our babies are always sleeping in a stroller, you know, in the car, in wherever, and the sunlight is always on them, even in their room with the blinds wide open and the sunlight's always on them, it can actually suppress that production of melatonin. So it depends on the individual child. I will say prior to kids, my dad actually was always like, I hope that you're not the mom who always has to leave when it's nap time. And I was like, oh no, I won't be. And And then when I got into this field and I realized the science behind why it is important to have those naps in a dark, quiet, low stimulated environment after the four month mark, I'm like, well, 
it's, it's just right there. I know that that is how my child is going to reach the best sleep that they can get. But one more thing about this is I don't want somebody to have to be at home every single day, never leave because they're all worried about naps for every single nap. I do want you to have some balance in life. And if there's a party you want to go to and they're going to nap in your arms while you're walking around the party, go for it. Okay. If you can bring a pack and play and set it up in your friend's room and let them nap in there and they will go for it. But there's a lot of 10 10 to 18 month olds who are going to probably throw a little bit of trouble at you if they're having to fall asleep in a new environment when they know the party's going on. You got a little FOMO going on. Again, that depends on the kids. Some kids are going to fall asleep really well at somebody else's house and some kids you're going to lay them down for a nap and they are not going to fall asleep in another environment. It seems like it's almost one of these things, you know, I was talking to somebody recently about something totally off topic, but regarding diet where we say like, oh, I don't think this affects us or that affects us. But in the end, you find, you know, you have a headache or you have a stomach problem or, you you know, and you don't realize that actually in turn it's affecting you. So it seems like it's a similar thing with this situation. It's like we might think, oh, yeah, they're sleeping like pros in this situation and that situation, but then I'm up all night and they're up all night or they take a really long time to fall asleep at night or whatever that is and not realizing that what happened earlier that day is affecting the evening. Yes. I love that example. You're absolutely right. So this is all so interesting. Um, Is there anything else regarding this just controversy that you want to mention or do you feel like you touched on all of it? No, I definitely do. I want to talk about one more thing. And that is once you get to, you know, we've looked at the science, we've looked at making sure we're being really consistent in whatever method you choose, but now we want to look at the method. So what, how are you going to respond if your child is having trouble falling asleep at bedtime or waking up multiple times a night or whenever they're struggling, how are you going to respond? And so, like I said, that's a matter of choosing a method you're comfortable with, but a lot of people think, and this is where the controversy falls, that the only option is cry it out. Often they will go to their doctor and they will say, oh my gosh, they're up so many times overnight. What do I do? Nine times out of 10, their doctor will say they're old enough. They're, they're growing fine. They don't need to eat overnight. Close the door. Just let them cry. They'll be fine. And that recommendation, especially from a doctor figure, is like, what? This is my baby. You just want me to close the door and not go back into the morning? You know, and right. some families are okay with that. And that is their decision. And I am not judging that whatsoever. But other families are like, no, isn't there another way to do this besides closing the door? And that's the part that I want to talk about is yes. There are so many different ways um, to, to guide them, to implement them, and to get to your goals other than closing the door and not going back in, into the morning, which, by the way, is the actual definition of cry it out. A lot of people think cry it out means crying, any crying at all, and that's not the case. Cry it out means you do your bedtime routine, you lay them down and close the door, and you go back in 11 hours later to get them in the morning. So that is what cry it out is, and that is what a lot of people don't love, but the good news is you don't have to do that if you're not comfortable with it. I did not do cry it out with either of my kids. Um, I did kind of more of an interval type approach where I consistently was there for them over and over again through the process, but I also gave them breaks 
in order to try to figure out what to do on their own. So I would, you know, they'd stay in there for two minutes, let's say. And then if they were still struggling, I'd go in and say the same sentence. It's time for sleep. Mommy loves you. I'll see you in the morning or something like that. I'd step back out and I'd maybe wait three minutes this time before I went in and gave that same reminder. And then the next time I'd wait four minutes. So I'd start building up, but I would still always go back to them and always be there for them. And that's just one example that if people have heard of Ferber is somewhat similar to a Ferber method, but there is, um, um, the quick check method, the chair method, the uh, the kissing game for toddlers, which is a really fun method. There are so many different ways to teach, but you just got to, you have to choose one that you are comfortable with. Know that there are most likely going to be tears involved because you're changing the way that you're responding to them, which is going to bring some tears. They're confused for a second, but your consistency is what will lower that and teach them. And you don't have to do cry it out to reach your goals. So interesting. You know, something that's really funny um, and super ironic that we're chatting today, and this happened yesterday. I auditioned yesterday for a new play called Cry It Out. No, you didn't. Yes. <laughs> it's called Cry It Out. It's by Molly Smith Metzler, and it's a full length play. And um, one of the lines that I had was basically asking another mom, you know, and it said in the notes, like, with hesitancy, you know, stuff like that, you know, like, are you doing the cry it out? Or what? I forgot what the exact line was, but it was something like, you know, how are you putting him down to sleep? And are you just letting him do this or that? And then she says back, oh, is that what they call like cry it out? (laughs) There you go. The fact that there is a play about this shows you what a big controversy that this has become. If we could all, from this podcast, if anybody takes anything, just take this. It doesn't have to be cried out, but we all can just agree on the foundation that we all need sleep and figure out a way to get there. We would never, you know, deprive our child of of food or, you know, milk. Those are all things that we're going to be there for them and they need sleep too. But know that this, this can be a hard process and you are not alone don't be afraid to reach out for help. I have um, a couple of different instructional video series that families use. One is for pregnant families all the way through um, families with three-month-olds, and it talks about what to do from the start. Um, you know, not that we're not talking about any methods. We're saying, how can you just start on a, out on a path to healthy sleep habits? And not talking about any, you know, parenting style, just what do we do? You know, why, when do our kids need sleep? What if they have night and day reversal? All of those types of things. So that's something on my website that people People can go and get like as a baby shower gift is a really popular one, actually. And then the next one is for four months to four years. And that's the deep one of like, okay, your child is having trouble with X, Y, or Z. I'm going to help you create a plan. And I go over four different teaching methods. So people can say, okay, this is the method that I feel like fits my family and my child the best. And then put that into the plan that I'm helping them create in in the instructional series. And then use that consistently until they reach their goals. That's so awesome. And I also saw that you have um, a couple books that you wrote along with like a little sleep charts and those, they're so cute. And those are for um, usually about 18 months and up, but they're picture books. So they would work for any age. And there's two of them, Sleepy Susie and Sleepy Steve. They're available on Amazon. Uh, Maybe you can put a link in the show notes, but they um, are little books, a boy and girl version that model healthy sleep habits. And that you, I'm amazed every day at some of the books that I find 
mind about sleep. For example, we went to the library the other day, my kids and I, and my daughter grabbed a book and said, look, mommy, this one's got a crib on it. It's about sleep. And so I opened it up and I read it and the crib was called Jail. And oh my goodness. the entire book was about the little boy who was put in jail every day and it was horrible. But this is just one example of a million books that are out there that talk about really bad sleep habits and the kid that won't go to sleep. So after enough of these, I decided I needed to write my own. So Sleepy Susie and Sleepy Steve model healthy sleep habits. Um, they use really consistent statements like I'm safe in my house, I'm safe in my room that really kind of build that confidence up. And then there is a bedtime routine chart that's free on my website that people can download as well. That's so cool. So if you want to check that out, go to Samantha Day, that's D-A-Y, consulting.com. And like I said earlier, you can also follow her um, on Instagram at Samantha Day Sleep Consulting. And I'll put all of that information um, into the show notes. But well, I'm going to take away, and I saw this on your Instagram, so I'm going to take away from our conversation the three things of picking a method that works for you because every child and every parent is different, focusing on timing, and then consistency and making that key. Yes, absolutely. Hopefully people will find some help from that. Um, Oh, this was so, so helpful. And when the time comes that I'm going to need some help, I'm sure that I'm going to be reaching out. But um, you also have so much information on your Instagram and your website and all that. So people can get tons of info on there. And also go check out her new podcast, Happy yes. Days, Rested Nights. What's funny is that I actually have my episode five coming out um, next week. It is going to be called, it's called The Truth About Cry It Out. So this is in perfect timing as well, because good. I go even more into depth over there about my thoughts on this. <laughs> oh, good. I love that. That's awesome. Yep. Thanks so much for chatting with us, Sam. Thank and um, hopefully one day we'll get to have coffee. We will. We're going to make it happen. <laughs> The Pumping Podcast is a podcast for moms and by moms, and I am your host. I'm not yet a mama. I'm a mama in training. If you're enjoying what you hear, please take a minute on iTunes to subscribe, rate, and review so more mamas out there can find us and listen along while they're pumping or breastfeeding. If you'd like to be a guest and share your story, email me at thepumpingpodcast at gmail.com. You can also email me if you have any questions for any of my guests, and I will reach out, get those answers, and relay them to you in a follow-up episode. A big thank you to my friends Ashley and Kelly for the use of their baby's laughter, and my dear friend Erin Adams for writing my gorgeous theme song. You can follow along on Instagram at The Pumping Podcast, and go ahead and share the podcast with a mama you know. Until next time, keep on pumping. Pumping.